Now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me, Father in heaven now. I pray that you would open up our eyes to read these words, to open up our ears to hear them and work within us so that we would know that these words have been breathed out by you, God, and that we should receive them as such. I pray, as you have said, that your word is alive, that it would go deep within us and work in us in such a way that uh, our sin would be exposed, but also that you would work your grace in us to transform us, to change us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Titus in chapter 2. I want to begin reading with verse 11 and I'll end with verse 8 of chapter 3. Titus in chapter 2, please. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, or zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, that no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show forth, uh, to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just want to tell you, Kelly, we're doing that because of you, because you helped us along with, you know, a little response after the scripture reading. Kelly's here today to check up on us, to make sure that we're actually uh, doing that. So, uh, reminder, of course, this is our Advent season and, and this Advent text, we came along somewhat providentially, I would say, since we we're working our way through Titus and came to these verses um, uh, really last Sunday. Um, as we've worked through the rest and we can see uh, the application, if you will, to Advent, as we mentioned last week in, in, uh, in liturgical settings and as, as lectionaries are put together for readings, uh, we realize that this reading is most often a Christmas Day reading. So it's helpful for us as we anticipate that um, to have it before us. First, Advent uh, is laid out, we see, in the appearing of the grace of God. In verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, past tense. And we know the reference there is the incarnation, the coming of Jesus to bring salvation for all people. We see this 
Again in verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, past tense, uh, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness and so forth. So first advent. But we also see, as we must, if we're going to be true to this season, um, to see the second advent of Jesus, that for which we await. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so first advent, second advent, as we come to this particular time of the year, focus our attention uh, upon that last Sunday, I, I made three, I trust it was three observations from this passage that I think just I want to to, um, to, to launch from, especially one in particular. Uh, the first observation you might remember was that Christianity has happened. Uh, first and foremost, at the very core, Christian faith isn't a philosophy of life, it's not a way of life, it's an event it's something that happened, therefore we declare it as good news. Christ has come. Whatever else is, is, is implicated with that or from that, uh, we can talk about at great length, but, but we mustn't ever forget the event <laughs> that Christ has come. And that establishes, if you will, this faith in him. Christianity has happened. It's an event uh, second observation is that though these two advents, first and second advent, are distinct in time, and also in some sense in purpose, Christ came his first advent to save, second, he'll judge and restore and all of that. But even though they're distinct then, really in our minds, as Paul has them here, we have to keep them both together. You know, as we talk about them, we'll talk about them discreetly, one than the other. Uh, but, but, but really, we have to keep them in mind. We're talking about the first advent. We need to keep the second advent in mind. We're talking about the second advent, the first advent in mind. If we don't do that, then what happens is we're thinking about the first advent only. We can become very discouraged. Well, Christ has come, but, but look at the world in which we live. Christ has come, but look at my own life still. And so we have to think, no, 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 there is this blessed hope. The, the way that we wait for the appearing of, of the one who is to come, who will bring to fruition all that has begun. But if we start, if we only think about the second advent, we forget about the first, if you will. We might forget about the present age in which we live and become apathetic in terms of our lives. So we keep them uh, both together. And then we made the observation in his coming, first coming, he appeared, the grace of God appeared. And so we realize that grace is attached always to Jesus. Grace isn't first a concept, something we define with words, but we know grace by knowing Jesus. We can't as believers Define it outside of him. That's why we learned and teach our kids the acrostic grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. The sense that grace is attached to Jesus. So when you're, if you write a, a, if you have a glossary of Bible terms and you have the word grace beside it, write Jesus. And you've got it. If you know him, you know you know, grace. So the grace of God has appeared, so grace comes in Jesus, and it brings this grace of God through Jesus, salvation to all people in the sense that it's both for Jew and Gentile. And there isn't any other way through which a person can be reconciled to God other than through him. This he is the grace of God, who is salvation. 
There isn't any other salvation apart from him. So he comes, he appears, this grace appears, bringing salvation, you see. And this salvation, as he puts it, is redemption. Notice verse 14. It's, he gave himself for us to redeem us. And we mentioned that that, that redemption is from the slave market as, as, as much as we don't want to think about that. But the slave market in the sense that we were once enslaved to sin, its penalty and its power. And we were hopeless and helpless to do anything about that. And so he comes and he pays this redemption price. He gives himself so that we can be freed. Freed from sin's penalty and power. Now, even as we think about that, just parenthetically, keep in your mind that the second advent. <laughs> because, well, we now know freedom from sin's penalty and sin's power. We don't know utter freedom from sin's presence. It's still here. But keep in mind that in his second advent, he will come, Jesus, and eradicate sin from the earth. Thus, the earth is then renewed. And the expression is it's a new earth, a new heavens. God will dwell with his people. There'll be this newness. And part of that newness, well, perhaps all of that newness, is, is that this new earth will reflect the glory of God. Uh, what does the prophet say? That the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There won't be any place on this new earth where, where, where the glory of God won't be evident and obvious. And thus, there'll be no sin. It'll be eradicated. So bear that in mind. It'll be gone. Uh, but, but we know now, in this first advent of Jesus, that he's come and he's he's dealt with for us, freed us from, once enslaved to, freed us from sin's penalty. We know the wrath of God, hell really. And he came to give himself, and we know that. But, but even in saying that, can I just, just, for me, stop a moment and marvel. <laughs> this is marvelous. Marvelous meaning it's something to be marveled at. It's marvelous, the fact that he's come and he's, he's, he's dealt with the penalty for our sin. And, and I just stop there for a moment because we talk about that all the time. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's evident in everything that we do as we conf- make confession of our sin, as we, as we make profession of our faith, as we, as we talk, uh, as we gather together. Jesus saved us from the wrath of God and we think about that. But, but sometimes we stop marveling at it because it just sort of becomes old hat. And, and I just, just don't let it become old hat. Realize your depravity and realize really, because after a while, let's face it, we sort of look at ourselves and we, we're not that bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he, he lays it out here. Uh, Paul does for, for, the, for the people. He says, verse 3 of chapter 3, but we ourselves were once foolish. We're fools, you see. We lived as if there, were no, well, there was no God. We're foolish. Um, disobedient. That even doesn't even sound that bad, does it? Disobedient. But, but it really is that we were rebelling against God, the very one who loved us. Um, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others hating one another. But, you see, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Look at what he did. 
He saved us. He rescued us. He freed us, if you will, from all of that. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration, he gave us new life. And that brought this cleansing and renewal of the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us richly through Jesus so that we could heirs of eternal life. Now, so that's, he's freed us from its sins penalty. We get that. But also, we must marvel at the fact that he's freed us from sin's gripping, enslaving power. Now, we know that he must have done that because we came to faith. So freed us in that sense so we could be freed from rebellion and, and trust him. But, but also in the context of our lives. That's why I read Romans 6. That's why I read the whole thing. And I know when you're sitting there listening, standing there listening, it's hard to kind of follow all of it unless you're really familiar with the text but this is a bit of a complicated one but just to get it out there and get it in the air if you will romans 6 this great passage um paul deals with the same question sort of in two different uh, with two different emphases first 14 verses and then 15 and on but just very quickly just to to bring that to your mind what's paul really saying he said that when jesus died something happened to him and to all those who were, would be and were united with him. This is since he said, when we died, when he died, we, believers, those united to him, those who were chosen by God before the foundations of the world, united with him. Something happened to him and to us, if you will. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. So when he died, our sin, the death, he died the death of our sin. And so he died, and so we no longer need to die in that sense, the condemnation of sin, because it's done in him. And when he rose, we rose to newness of life. So when we are born again, born by the Spirit, we receive this new life, a new inclination to everything. Most especially God and all that implies, which is everything. This newness of life. That's really true. Now, if you're like me, you go, I, I know. I just don't see it as much as I'd like to. All right? And I don't feel it as much as i like to. But that, that's the truth of it. We died and rose with Jesus. And life is new. It's different. A whole new orientation to life. And here's what happened. Verse 5. For when united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, sinful self, that was to be condemned, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That's really true. We're no longer slaves to sin. And he says, we need to believe this. We need to know that. Verse 8, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that uh, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Uh, so verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, so don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore. Verse 14, and here verse 14, not as a command, but as a fact. For sin will have no dominion over you. Right? Since you are not under law, but under grace. Under law that says do this and you do do this and you will live. Grace says, 
Christ did this, so you live. See the difference? They'll do this and you will live, but grace says Christ did this, <laughs> and therefore you live. So get that. I need to get that. We need to get that. Something happened. This is who I really am. And, uh, and, and so then he, Paul goes on to say, well then, okay, if not under law, but under grace now. So what, do, what about sin? Does that mean you can still sin? He says, no, no, no. Please understand. You were once a slave to it. Now you're not. You were once a slave to it. Now you're not. You, you were once a slave to disobedience and unrighteousness. Now you're to be a slave to righteousness and obedience. And you can say, well, wait a minute. That's just one slavery to another. It's, you know, sort of like the, the, what the Nobel Prize winner in literature, uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. He wrote a song once. Um, might be the devil, it might be the Lord, <laughs> but you got to serve somebody. Uh, Dylan was no Charles Wesley. But, um, but the, the sense of it, but, but to see this thing about serving God, that's what we were meant to do. You see, we're freed from sin which destroys so that we can be free to do that which we were always meant for, if you will. We were meant to glorify God, to reflect Him. Yes, to worship Him, He's worth it. But in our lives, to to glorify Him, to to reflect who He is. When Kelly was here, he talked about Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's love within God, always, forever. Always has been, always will be. He is love. And we reflect that. We are to love you, see. Love him, love one another. And, and, and so we're free to that. Um, Galatians. And uh, what is it? Chapter 5. Uh, Paul writes about this, this kind of freedom. Verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That is, the, to sin dictating your life. And then verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh that is sin, but love, but through love serve one another. That's why we've been set free, you see, to, 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 to be who it is that we're always meant to be. And this isn't to be a burden to us, this freedom to obey, right? Uh, Paul, uh, John writes, First uh, John Chapter 5 and verse 3. He writes, um, well, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I don't know about you, but I've had some commandments laid on me that have been burdensome, right? When I was a kid, my mom would come into my room and say, clean your room. Oh my goodness, that was such a burden. Because I looked at my room and it seemed clean. Right? I was 10. What did my mother know about clean? Now, if she would have come in and said, pick up your basketball and go shoot in the backyard at the, you know, that wouldn't have been a burden at all. Right? Now, why? Because though I did not have the stature, I had the heart. To, to shoot baskets in my bag and play basketball. I had the heart for that. It wasn't a burden. I, I, did, I could do that all day long. And in, in sometimes the worst of conditions. But it was never a burden. But it was always a burden to clean my room. Why? Because I had no heart for it. 
meant nothing to me. I saw no purpose in it at all. It was contrary to who I was. But see, now we're new. And the heart is new. And so the, the law of God, his commandment, shouldn't be a burden to us, but freedom to us to live and to really live. You know, if, if you could personify a locomotive, a train, if you could personify a locomotive and ask the locomotives, are the tracks that you on burdensome? And any smart locomotive would say, no, they're not at all. You pick me off the track and I'm done for. You put me on the track, I'm free to go. It's like that. If you ask a fish, you know, is being in the water restrictive? He said, no, you take me out of the water, I'm really restricted, right? I die. There's freedom, you see, in the water because the fish was made for water, the locomotive was made for the tracks and we're made to glorify God. You see, we're made for this. This this should be our joy, you see. And, and, And so... What is great for us here and and helpful is that Paul writes and says, the same grace that has brought you this salvation brings you the fullness of this salvation. It not only brings you what what we call justification, that you stand righteous before God, sins forgiven and accepted and reconciled to him, but also that he didn't leave you there. But this same grace, and it's grace. Remember, grace means God's kindness to unworthy sinners, right? He, it, it's still his grace. He doesn't say, listen, I've forgiven you. I've declared you to be righteous. Now get out there and do your best. Serve me. <laughs> but that same grace, you see, comes and says, no, 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 no. I know you can't do this without me. I, I know, I know you can't do it. So, so this same grace will now work in you. See, when we're born again, it's God's grace utterly. We're passive in that. But now he says, this grace that brings justification and brings, I'm sorry, brings regeneration, brings this new birth that works in you. That was going to work with you to make you holy. And so now, he says, it will train you. It will teach you. Now, now this, is, this is Paul's confidence when he writes to Titus and he says, teach the old men this and teach the young men this and teach the old women this and the young women this and teach the bond slaves this. Teach them how they're to live. Well, what confidence would Paul have at all in telling Titus to teach them this stuff? Because he's already said, I'll tell you what Cretans are like. Their, their own, one of their own prophets said what Cretans are like. Verse 12 of chapter 1. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So they are by nature. Um, we are Cretans, by the way. <laughs> and it's the same way that we're foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various pleasures and passions. And so forth and so on. That's, that's the natural thing about it. So, so what would give... Paul, any confidence to tell Titus, teach the old men to live like this, teach the old women to live like this, teach the young men, young women, bond slaves to live like this. The only thing that gave Paul confidence to tell Titus to teach them this is the word for in chapter chapter 2, verse 11. Because something's happened to them. They're believers in Jesus. Then this teaching will resonate in their souls. And this teaching will be taken 
by them and the Holy Spirit working them to, to train them up, you see. Because the means by which, one of the means by which this training happens by grace is through the word of God, you see. Coming to us. It gives us the confidence to, to teach others who are believers. It gives me the confidence to preach to others who are believers because some things happen. This will resonate with us. You'll go, yes, that's it, you see. And it's grace, you see. Grace is at work. If someone came to you and, 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 and you were taking a class and the person said, well, what's that teacher like? And you said, the teacher is gracious. What, what, what would you be saying? Well, you'd be saying the teacher is kind. The teacher is patient. The teacher is compassionate. The teacher is forgiving. And you might think, whew, I'll get an A. You said, no, 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 no. The teacher is wise and loving. The teacher's, teacher's wise knows the best end and the best means to get there. And so the teacher will take you through all kinds of of, of exercises that are the best exercises for you to get to the best end, which is to know this material really well. You see, that's, that's what gracious is. And then you throw in sovereign <laughs> over all things. And that's the grace of God that's at work training us, teaching us. You see, it's grace. We don't need to be afraid of it. I have to be honest with you. There's sometimes when I'm praying, I don't know about you, when I'm praying that, that I say, God, I know my sin, but I'm afraid for you to work at it because I'm afraid of what you'll do. I'm afraid of how you'll eradicate this sin from me. I'm afraid of how you'll deal with me. You might expose me in ways that will really embarrass me, right? You, you might... You might Job, if I could use him as a verb, you might job me, right? You might, you might have these terrible things happen in my life. And, and that makes me afraid of what you might take from me. And yet, the word comes, no, 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 it's the grace of God that teaches us this, right? Great, the graciousness of God. He's gracious to do it. Because he doesn't want to leave us in our misery. That's gracious, you see. If he just said, I'm going to forgive you and, 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 and I'm going to declare you to be righteous, but you're just going to keep on sinning till, till you die. And so most of your time is going to be in confession and, and, and you're never going to get out of this at all. We'd be miserable, right? So he doesn't do that. So it's grace that, that he teaches us. To renounce ungodliness and to live in godliness. So it's grace that does that. But he also does it graciously. So we can trust him. So we can be honest. And again, I'm telling you more than I know here. <laughs> right? In the sense that, that I know this is true. But, but it's, it's, it's still a struggle for me uh, to, to really marvel at it and grab a hold of it. So I'm just with you on this. But, but to trust him and say, God, this is my sin. Deal with it. Teach me to say no to it. Teach me to renounce it, to deny it. That word deny is the same word in a sense that Peter used when he denied Jesus. I don't know that guy. And so he's saying, I don't, I don't know that way of life. I don't know that 
passion. I don't know that desire. I don't know that action. I, I don't know it at all. It's just, it's foreign to me. It's out there. So that's what, that's what his grace is doing in us. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, like, I'm, I, I wish you'd get on with this. <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have to keep learning the same things, it seems, or keep going back through this and through this and through this. And, and so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the grace of God. I, I don't know the, 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 the journey, the plan, the, the, the map he has for each of us. And it seems in some sense different. I mean, some of us experience X, some of us experience Y, some of us experience this or that. I don't know. Uh, um, compared to me, most of you seem like you're sailing through life. And compared to when you think of me, you think I'm sailing through life because it's happening to us. That's just the sense of it, you see. I get that. But the, but, but we have to keep in mind, we have to know. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. You need to know this. You need to know that you've died. And you've been raised to newness of life. And obedience to the commands of God are not a burden. Why? Because now you have a heart for it. When you, when you hear these things, there's a resonating that goes on. And you said, yes, that must be true for, for me. You know, as, as I was sharing with some friends the other night, we were walking through bits of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes beginning, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, when we get it, when we understand that we're bankrupt spiritually and we have nothing to offer to commend ourselves to God, we get there, he says, well, here's the kingdom, you see. And then the second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we think, yes, okay, when I, when I realize my spiritual bankruptcy, the response to that, to knowing my sin, is to mourn, to be sorry about it, to realize how devastating that my sin is, how it offends God, how, how much it kills me, if you will, to live selfishly and all of that. And then to be comforted, the third one, blessed are the meek, I realize then who I am before God and for others. I'm not all that, I'm a sinner. I haven't anything to commend myself for righteousness. All that I have that's good is a gift. And I recognize that. But then there's this other one that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because I realize, you see, my problem is this spiritual poverty and my sin. And so what he works in us is this sense of desire for righteousness. And that comes in two ways. One way is what we call the imputation of this righteousness that comes. He says, all right, you hunger for righteousness. You haven't got it, so I'm going to give you the righteousness of Jesus. It's yours, you see. But then he says... I know, I know now what's really in your heart. What's really in your heart now is to live righteously. That's, how, that's what you desire now. You, you, you know it in your standing with me. You taste it, you see, from knowing Christ and seeing him. And, and so now you realize that, so I'll fill you. And that's this, what we're talking about. I freed you from the bondage to sin. And now Trust me, say no. Renounce. Renounce ungodliness and, 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 and live. And you think, I think. All right. By way of my experience, I see it some. I, I see that God is at work in my life. I, I know that I believe, and that's a work of grace. I know that there are times when I've obeyed in the good heart and, and I 
see the work of God in me. I see his fruit at times, yet at other times I don't. But then I see the fruit of it through confession and repentance and prayer and trust. And I, and I, and I live, we live this life where we hear the truth, we compare it to our lives, we make confession, we repent, we pray for God's help, and then we go and do. And in the midst of that, we find our sin again. Oh, we see the fruit of God's spirit, but we find our sin again, and we come back to the truth, to confession, to repentance, to prayer, to act, and again and again and again and again. And yet God is also gracious to show us things, to give us signs and authentications of the fact that this is true, that the penalty and power of sin has been dealt with by Jesus. And even a day will come when it will be eradicated from the face of the new earth and our lives. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, when you gather together, to have bread and this juice or wine or something like that and remember Jesus with these words. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body which is given for you. And as the apostle writes in Titus, it was, he gave himself that we might be redeemed, bought back from the penalty of sin and its power. Smell it, touch it, <laughs> taste it. In the same way he took the cup and again after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, do this in remembrance of me. And as we come to this table, you see what we, what we remember, what we know is what Christ did. And he uses this to remind us, to work in us, that we might know. We might know that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation that salvation is the redemption brought by Jesus to free us from sin's penalty and sin's power. And so that we can trust that he really is, he really is at work within us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us that we'd get it, that, that from the word that we read and considered this morning from this table and knowing the very presence of Jesus among us that we would then be convinced that we would know that we've been freed that we've been freed so that we can have assurance that we belong to you that we can live in that we've been freed from sin so that we know that we can say no to ungodliness to renounce it so that we may live unto you. So I pray that as we come to this table that you would firm that up in us. That you would strengthen our faith. That which you would convince us more thoroughly than ever before. So that we might live assured and walk in a way that's pleasing to you 
So take this bread, Lord, and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the presence of the grace of God, even our Lord Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name.